Good morning and uh, welcome. Uh, good to see you all here this morning. Go and get your Bibles out and uh, turn to Malachi 3. And uh, we'll finish Malachi up this morning as you're turning to Malachi 3. Uh, I'll let you in on a little conversation Becky and I were having last night. Uh, obviously talking about uh, the things that have unfolded uh, in our nation over the course of this week. And, and uh, we were talking about, are you going to say anything about it? And I said, well, God's word is going to speak right to it. Um, and God in his infinite wisdom from eternity past uh, knew exactly where we would be on this moment. Uh, I knew probably a few months ago what we'd be preaching on, though I had no idea uh, what would be going on. And yet I'm um, profoundly grateful that God in his infinite wisdom can, can ordain things far greater than you and I could even fathom or imagine and as we come to the book of Malachi, as we will wrap up the book of Malachi this morning, I think God's word will very clearly engage a number of things. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever our response is, whatever we're struggling with, God's word is going to speak into that. See, because the reality of the book of Malachi is up to this point, it's, there, there's been a lot of really difficult things that God has spoken, keep in mind, to the people of God. Okay, he's speaking to the people of God in the book of Malachi. And, and honestly, it's up until this point, it's a pretty bleak picture until we get to where we're going this morning. And we show up and what, what shows up here at the very end of the book of Malachi is this great hope that is offered for those that fear and follow the Lord. And as we get into the text, as we dive into the passage here this morning, we're, we're going to see very clearly there's this connection between uh, fear and righteousness. Those that fear the Lord will respond in righteousness to the Lord. And in those two things, as those are brought together, you have this great hope that arises, quite honestly, in a situation where there was very little, if any, hope at all that existed. And maybe some of you, right, maybe some of you feel that very same way this morning. You look at our nation, you look at what's unfolding, you look at some of the decisions, you look at the trajectory and where things have been and where we're going, and you're like, Mike, I have no hope. Well, I don't have any hope in our government because it's run by flawed, broken men. I don't have any hope really in any human institution, but I have a great hope in the sovereign God of the universe. And that's, loved ones, that's the only place where we'll have any hope that will sustain all that's in front of us. And so wherever you find yourself, I would encourage you that you would have what we would say this morning, the title of the message is a righteous hope. See, as, as we fear God, as righteousness begins to stir up within us, there's this component that hope is joined together in that. Righteous hope. Mike, where are we going this morning? What, what is it that God's word has for us? It has this, that a fear of God, listen very carefully, loved ones, a fear of God brings a righteous hope to our life. A fear of God brings a righteous hope to our life. And especially when you consider the context of where we finished last week. In fact, I'm going to begin to read. We're going to focus our attention on verses 16 of chapter 3 uh, through the end of the book, which is chapter 4, verse 6. But I'm going to start uh, back in verse 13 because I think that will play in uh, substantially to uh, some of the things that we see unfolding, especially in the latter part of chapter 3. So why don't you join with me as we read God's word, uh, starting in Malachi 3, verse 13. Uh, here's what uh, the scriptures say to us. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. 
But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, right, here's the accusation of the people. It's vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And you, you might be going, yep, I'm watching that unfold. Now listen, listen, listen. The book of Malachi doesn't end there. Look at what he says next. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Beginning in chapter 4, I'm not sure why they have a chapter break there. It's very clearly that he's continuing in this same line. God says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven or a furnace, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then really as a summary to the whole of the book of Malachi, God says this. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let us seek the Lord in prayer and to give us wisdom uh, on his word. Pray with me, loved ones. Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that your word brings such clarity and wisdom. Uh, in days that can be confusing, uh, in days that maybe don't make sense, in days where we struggle to fully understand and comprehend, God, why? For what purpose? For what reason? Do you allow this? Do you tolerate this? Do you uh, uh, seem to allow what the accusations there in chapter 3 insinuate that the wicked prosper and they put you to the test and they escape? And yet, God, your word is true and you fill out that picture in these last few verses of Malachi. God, we thank you for that. We pray that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work amongst your people, to open our hearts, to open our minds, to open our eyes to the truth of what you want to teach us. But God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Frank Melizzo and for Mountain Christian Church. And I pray for Frank as he preaches, such a faithful minister of your gospel, having done it for so many years. God, I pray that he would continue to be faithful. God, that you would be honored as he preaches uh, to his people, to your people this morning. And God, for us, as your word goes forward, we pray that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work. Jesus, I think of what John the Baptist said in John 3, that you would increase and that he would decrease. God, we pray that would be true of all of us here this morning. That what would be clear, that what would be evident is the increase of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we would decrease in your presence. Lord Jesus, have your way amongst us now. Do what only you can do. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A righteous hope. A righteous hope. Three things here this morning. 
uh, in the text uh, surrounding a righteous hope. Here's the first. Here's the first. Notice this in verses 16 through 18. The first thing we see here is that we were to put our hope in God's righteous work. Loved ones, we're to put our hope in God's righteous work. Now, before we get to that, let me just point one thing out here. I want you to notice, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Here's what I want you to make note of. That in the midst of all the sinfulness, in the midst of all the rebellion, in the midst of all the struggle in Israel, there was a righteous remnant that remained there. And I think far too often, sometimes what we do as believers, we begin to look around and we begin to go, you know what? Man, I'm alone. I'm alone in this. Where's everybody else? And yet throughout the history of God's people, there has always, always been a righteous remnant. Always. And sometimes, sometimes we, 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 we think, we think it's not true. I mean, we look at the book of Malachi up until this point in time, maybe you're wondering, is anyone righteous? Is there anyone righteous in Malachi's day besides him? I mean, at times I kind of wondered, it almost felt like in Genesis 18, remember in Genesis 18? God comes to Abraham, he says, hey, get your family out of Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm gonna destroy it. And he begins to bargain with God, okay, okay, uh, but if, if there's 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? I was like, okay, I'll do that. Okay, how about 45 Right, he, Abraham wasn't even confident there were 50 righteous people. Gets to the point where he's down to 10. And what happens in chapter 19? The city's destroyed, right? <laughs> Obliterated. And yet God was willing to move to that point. And sometimes, sometimes we feel like that, that there's, there's no one righteous. And yet I think maybe a more appropriate a reality is to understand, one, that there's a faithful remnant. I think of uh, maybe not so much Genesis 18. Remember 2 Kings 6? And Elisha and his servant are there, and the Assyrian army is pressing in on them. And the servant looks out, and he's like, man, we're, we're toast. Look at this huge army and everyone, and what are we going to do? And Elisha, he, he, just, he just starts praying. He's like, God, would you help him to see what's really going on? And the text tells us that his eyes are open. What did he see? He saw another army, except it wasn't a human army. What was it? It was God's army. And all of a sudden he was like, oh, you know what? We're okay. We're good. We got this. <laughs> see, because the reality is, is we're not, we're not alone. We're never alone in pursuing the Lord. Now our feelings in this, sometimes we feel that way. But hear me when I say this, loved ones. Feelings are not always factual. Your feelings will betray you. And so you may not feel like it, but you got to hear the word of God that you're not alone. And so the people, right, they begin to speak to one another, and they're speaking specifically about all that God has done. Let me just pause here for just a moment. Let me talk about what I believe the purpose of preaching is. And it'll make sense here. Just bear with me for a moment. But we believe, we believe at Faith Church, that the purpose of preaching is the proclamation of God's word with the hope and the intent that God's word changes the hearts and minds of the hearers of the listeners. And our desire in doing that is to help make it applicable, to help make it practical, to take God's word and to implement that into your daily lives. So for example, if you look at the first point, put your hope in God's righteous work. Right? The idea that, okay, I understand what God's word is calling me to do. We want to frame this in a way that it's not just informational, but there's life change and application that comes with it. But sometimes, sometimes you come to text 
And it's pretty clear that you and I do absolutely nothing and God does everything. We are at one of those texts here this morning. And so, so where God is incredibly active, we as the people who will embrace this text are quite passive with respect to a lot of the action. But I think the way in which we're active is to put our hope in God's righteous work where we're going to embrace and accept what he chooses to do and what he calls us to do and be. And so with that, that understanding that really the emphasis is around what God is going to do and we put our hope in that, we're moved by that notice here, four different things in verses 16 through 18 that we see God doing. Here's the first, look at verse six, uh, first, sorry, verse 16. It says, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Look at what it says next. The Lord paid attention and heard them. The Lord paid attention and heard them. We put our hope in God's righteous work. We put our hope in the fact that God hears what we say. God hears what we say. Now, some people, some people believe that the Lord paid attention and heard them is, is more like a quote. It's actually what the people were saying. Others believe that it's just a statement. Uh, either way, either way, the point is true that God hears what we say. God hears every word that you say, audibly or inaudibly. Loved ones, he hears your prayers and petitions. He knows what's going on in the depths of your heart. He hears your heart's longing to honor him. He hears what no one else does. Your voice is not silenced before the Lord, but he hears. He hears you. Of course, part of this amplifies the great need that we have to be on our knees in prayer, to be petitioning the Lord. I think one of the greatest indictments of the American church is we, we have no passion, no fervor, we have no stamina for prayer. We're so weak when it comes to that. Yet God hears what we say. Of course, he hears what you say to him. He hears what you say to others. He hears what you say to yourself. We put our hope in the fact that God hears us. He hears what we say. We're not silenced before him. And the petitioning and the pleading don't, does not fall on deaf ears. Notice the secondly, verse 16 as well. It says, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. I just wrote this down, that God acknowledges our fear of him. That God acknowledges our fear of him. He, he speaks of this book of remembrance. God doesn't only hear what we say, he acknowledges the ways in which we respond to him and the ways in which we're pursuing him. Now, you have to understand what a book of remembrance symbolized and what it meant in that day and age. It was written, kings and rulers would have uh, these books of remembrance. And what they would do is they would write various things. It was kind of like a, a, a royal journal, if you will. They would write various acts of heroism or cowardice or things of that nature in. And then they would often um, write in there as well <clears throat> the various forms and ways in which these individuals were rewarded or punished uh, for such action. Uh, probably the clearest example of this, remember in the book of Esther? And uh, Mordecai uh, had spared the king from an, uh, 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 an assassination plot. And wicked Haman, who was bent on destroying all of the Jews, and he hated Mordecai, uh, was getting ready to unfold uh, this plot uh, that would ultimately cost Mordecai his life. And as it would just so happen the night before, okay, how many people want to believe that that was coincidental, right? Not, okay, that was the hand of God. The king can't sleep. Hey, bring me the book of remembrance. Starts telling him about Mordecai. What was done to reward this man? Well, nothing, king. And of course, then the great irony 
of Haman, who was going to destroy Mordecai, had to lead him around the city telling the people how great he was. It's the providence of God in that, right? There's a great example of God acknowledging our fear of him. But this, this book of remembrance, right, for those that would esteem the Lord, here's what I think is so fascinating is we've got to see this in context. If you go back to verse 14, you go back to verse 15, what are the people saying? It's vain to serve God. There's no profit in keeping his charge. And what God, what's God saying here, just the two verses down? You don't know what you're talking about. Now, God doesn't need to write a book of remembrance. God remembers everything perfectly. But the point being that God remembers everything perfectly. That he acknowledges those who fear him, who follow him, who trust in him. And the subsequent rewards that come with it. And there's a great reward. I'll just tell you, in our day and age, a lot of times those rewards are not immediate and they're not physical. In fact, more often than not, they're eternal and they're spiritual. And they're acknowledged in eternity, not here and now. And yet I wonder, see, I wonder in a society where we want everything right now, like right now, I want it now. Do you remember when the internet first came out? And they had dial-up, right? And, and dial-up, dial-up was cool in the mid-90s because we had never, I mean, Prodigy was like the only other thing we had to go off of. And so you had dial-up. And I was like, this is amazing. Now, could you imagine? Could you imagine if we went home today and you logged onto your computer and you had to do the dial-up thing? And it took like 45 minutes to download a two-minute audio clip, right? What would we be doing? I want it now. I want it now. Like, why is this taking so long? Now, hear me when I say this in a society where we want everything instantly, I fear that we've become so averse to delayed gratification that when it comes to eternal rewards, we are hesitant to serve God fully because I want it now. I'm not willing to wait for it. And I would caution you, I would caution you, do not fall into that trap. Do not go before God and say, hey, I want it now, I want it now, I want it now. When God for all of eternity passes, says, you're not gonna get it now. You get it over here. God acknowledges, loved ones, God acknowledges our fear of him. But oftentimes his reward is eternal and we'll find it on the other side of eternity. Put your hope in God's righteous work. God hears what we say. God acknowledges our fear of him. Check out verse 17. Love verse 17. Here's the third thing. God extends favor and mercy, right? Really the core of everything that we hold dear as followers of Jesus is summarized here in verse 17. Look at what God says. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. God extends favor and mercy. I want you to notice two distinct things that show up here in respect to God's favor and to God's mercy. He talks about this idea, this concept of the treasured possession, and he talks about the fact that he spares us. So let's just talk about both of these here for a moment. Well, that word treasured possession actually has a very rich connotation in the Old Testament. In fact, that's the same word that God used back in Exodus 19, right after the people had come out of Egypt in the desert. It's the verse before God tells the nation of Israel that you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be the ones who are going to have the privilege of telling the whole world about me. What he says right before that, he says, you're my treasured possession. 
What it literally means is that it, it, it carries this connotation of something that's exclusive, this valued property. See, what God was saying about his people is that they're, they're his valued property, that, that they mean so much to him. And in the same way that that was true in Moses' day, the same way that it was true in Malachi's day, loved ones, that's true today. That hasn't changed. Did you know that you are God's treasured possession? Do you know that, that, that he still feels that way about us? My God, I don't, I don't know about that. We don't have to look any further than the cross to see the, the, the weight of the truth of that and all that God was willing to forego and forbear to see us reconciled to him. And I find it so profound that a thousand years before we see God telling the people in Malachi's day that they are his treasured possession that he was telling the people in Moses' day. And for an entire millennium, by and large, there was massive failure, rebellion, rejection, and hard-heartedness. And yet here God is, a thousand years later, telling them, you're still my treasured possession. And that's so freeing. And that's so life-giving. See, because here's what you have to understand. The people, the people in Malachi's day, the people in Moses' day, and the people today... We are God's treasured possession. Listen very carefully, loved ones. Not because of what we do. Not because of how we perform. Not because of how moral or righteous we are. We are God's treasured possession because of who we belong to. There is a massive, massive distinction between being valuable and being valued. Let me just press into this here for a moment. Someone who is valuable, something is valuable, their worth is inherently tied to their performance, to their ability, to their capacity. I think of elite athletes or uh, world-class musicians. If you watched the NBA Finals a week or two ago, you saw how valuable LeBron James was. Right? But his worth or his value in that sense is tied solely to his performance. Now, the danger of this, in a spiritual sense, when we live that way, our spirituality is essentially boiled down to moralism and works-based salvation. That I can earn it, that I can achieve it, that I can merit it, that I can do it all on my own. That God finds value in me when I'm good or when I behave or when I don't watch R-rated movies or when I don't cuss or whatever the thing is. Of course, the danger in that is that's not true of us all the time. Because I know for every single one of you that, that you sinned in a variety of capacities this week. And the same is true of me. And so if I'm valuable, well, then the moment I sin, I no longer have any value. My worth is tied up in my performance. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And for far too many churches, that's how we measure our spirituality. Now contrast that with being valued when you're valued, it has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with who you belong to. If you want an example or an illustration, you ever seen those celebrity auctions? They'll auction off like all kinds of household goods and it's just ridiculous, right? They'll sell like a pencil for $1,000. I'm like, I got like 50 of those at home. I can't sell them for more than 12 cents because that's all that they're worth. It's not that that particular individual's pencil is valuable, but people look at it and go, because it belonged to that person, there's value placed upon it. That is true for you and I as believers. God's value, God's worth that he places upon us is not tied to whether or not you're good or you're moral. Now, certainly our heart should drive us to want to please God in that. 
but our value is inherently tied to who we belong to, that I'm found to be Christ's. I would just exhort you, don't play, don't play that game. Get out of that rat race. Have nothing to do with this idea of attempting to make yourself valuable to God. God extends favor and mercy. He shows us that we're his treasured possession. Secondly, he spares us. Right? God spares his people from what they truly deserve. I sometimes find it funny to watch Christians talk about, well, I want what's rightfully mine. I don't think you know what you're saying. In fact, I'm convinced you have no idea or you have no idea what you're saying because if you wanted what is rightfully yours, then you get a one-way ticket, all expenses paid to hell and those expenses were paid by you and by me. That's what we rightfully deserve. See, God's mercy is that he spares us from that. And as you consider these two things, right, you think about the fact that we're God's treasured possession, you consider that he spares us. See, this is where we place our hope. This is where our hope is found. This is what sustains us and upholds us. It's not in our ability to, to be good or to do more or to try harder. We put our hope in God, in his work, in his accomplishments, on our behalf. So I just ask you right now here in this moment, what are you hoping in? What is it that you're hoping in? No doubt, no doubt the events of this week were incredibly grievous. Um, I don't know that they were necessarily surprising to me, but they were incredibly grievous. But I think for some of us, for some of us, the response is so um, volatile, so visceral, so uh, knee-jerk, because if we're honest with ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves, our hope wasn't in Jesus Christ. Our hope was in an institution. And that idol has let us down because every false God will ultimately let us down. What is it that you're putting your hope in? Is it in God or is it in something else? Here's the final thing. Put your hope in God's righteous work. God makes distinction between the wicked and righteous. God will make a distinction between the wicked and righteous. Really, this is a pivot point that launches us into chapter four here. Just one note. Let me just read it here then. Once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. That God's gonna make a distinction. It's not lost on God. God wasn't surprised by anything this week. That didn't sneak up on him. That didn't happen behind his back. Like, wait, what? What happened? I didn't see that one coming. No, God's like, I know that's coming. But here's what you got to know. I'm going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God. That word serve really is best understood as worship in a comprehensive sense. It's a reflective of a life that is devoted to a particular being or entity. The reality is that we all worship someone or something. The question is what? God makes a distinction between the wicked and righteous and really launches us into the second thing. At a righteous hope, we start by putting our hope in God's righteous work. Here's the second thing. Look at chapter four, verses one through three. We accept God's judgment of the righteous and wicked. We accept God's judgment of the righteous and the wicked. Now, I'll, I'll tell you here that I'm not sure that we can truly reject it, okay? I, I don't know that it's really bent on us accepting it or not. In fact, I know it's not. It's, it's gonna happen one way or the other. But as believers, where we embrace God's response both to the wicked and to the righteous, and so notice, notice where Malachi starts. He starts with God's judgment of the wicked. In fact, in verse one, he essentially tells us three things and then he tells us those same three things 
The second time, look at what he says. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So notice three aspects, aspects here of God's judgment with respect to the wicked. Here's the first. I just wrote this down, that God's judgment is imminent. It's imminent. Look at what he says. Behold, the day is coming. Not might come. Possibly is going to come. Probably is going to come. No, no, it's coming. Sure is the sun rising. That day's coming. In fact, he says it again. The day that is coming. Now, it's imminent, not in the sense that it's immediate chronologically, as in tomorrow it's going to happen. Though maybe, who knows, it could happen tomorrow. But it's imminent in the surety that it will happen It won't be avoided. It won't be sidestepped. It won't be dismissed. Now the people, just say this, the people in Malachi's day were frustrated because it wasn't sooner. As we talked about last week, part of that was they failed to see God's grace in that. That God allowed people, he forbeared with them in their failure, both as a means to prove his righteous judgment, but also as a chance for repentance. And so God is certainly gracious in this, but he won't be gracious in this respect eternally. He will eventually bring judgment. It's imminent. Notice this secondly. His judgment is intense. It's intense. He says it's burning like an oven or a furnace. He says later, uh, shall set them ablaze. Probably kind of felt like last week, except worse, right? Just hot, hot, hot. There is an intensity to it. Now here's what I want you to understand in this, that in respect to this intensity, this is primarily a reflection of the seriousness of sin before a righteous God. Hence the need for the intensity. And the reason that it's so hot, so intense, so, 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 so harsh, if you will, is it really begins to give us a right picture of just how holy and righteous God is and how sinful and wicked we are. That's what he's really after here. And so the danger, the danger is looking at this and going, well, God's mean. Why is God so mean? No, no, God's not mean. God's holy and he's righteous and he's just. And and we have to recognize that sin is a massive offense. It's a massive affront to him. God's judgment is intense. Thirdly, look at this. His judgment is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. He tells us that the evildoers will be stubble. He will leave neither root nor branch. It will be complete. It will be comprehensive. Now let me just point out, I think this is probably the best place to say this, but let me just point this out here, that all of us, all of us, all of us, deserve this judgment. And the temptation, the temptation would be to start pointing the fingers, you wicked, you evil, you vile. You you equally deserve that same judgment. But it's the grace of God that sent the Son of God to die as a substitute, as an atonement in your place, in my place, on the cross. 
That's what frees us. That's what releases us from God's judgment. And so I think our initial response to God's judgment here should be that we praise God for Jesus and the cross. Let me just press a little further on this because really we can see this two ways. And when we have a low view of God's holiness, when we have a uh, maybe an adequate view of our sinfulness, we look at this and we go, God, you're excessive in this. This is a little bit over the top. Do you really have to consume them? I mean, entirely. I mean, come on. Like, that seems a little bit over the top. See, it's over the top because we don't see things the way that God sees things. We don't have an accurate view of his holiness and righteousness. We don't understand the massive affront of sin and the heinous offense that it is before our God. And when we have that right view, we begin to recognize the necessity of this judgment. And so I would just caution you, I would caution you loved ones that you don't do the very thing that brings about this judgment. That you don't think less of God than is rightly deserved. And sometimes, sometimes, uh, right, some believers, we, we probably go too far and we almost relish the fact that, that God is gonna judge the wicked. Ezekiel 33 tells us that God takes no pleasure, he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. So neither should we, all right? God has no pleasure in that. God's not fired up like, ha, 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 down with the wicked. No, it grieves him. We should be grieved by that as well. But on the other side of that, sometimes we, we move to the other side, the, the other continuum, and is we don't think highly enough of God's judgment. And it's God's judgment of wickedness that proves and demonstrates the fact that he's holy and righteous and just. Could you imagine how ludicrous that guy who shot up all those people in South Carolina, could you imagine if the judge rolled in and was like, you know what? It's really not that bad of an issue. It's not that grievous of a loss. Spent some time with him. He doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. I'm gonna let him go. What would well up inside of all of us? Outrage, right? Because we long for justice in the same way that God longs for justice. And so we have no problem wanting to see justice executed when it's fair or right. We just sometimes struggle to see it when it's fair and right towards ourselves. And that's what really oppresses us. We accept, we accept God's judgment of the wicked. And then notice this also, that we accept God's blessing for the righteous. We accept his blessing for the righteous. Look at what he says in verse two and three. But for you who fear my name, all right, there's the qualifier. For you who fear my name, you who follow me, you who do the things that I call you to do. Notice three things that come out of this. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked for there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet. That's kind of a graphic image, isn't it? And it kind of gives us a depiction of, of God's judgment of sin. There'll be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So notice the blessing for the righteous. Three things I want you to see here in the text. First of all, the blessing that comes to the righteous. Here's the first thing in verse two is there's healing. There's healing. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Very a poetic way of essentially saying as the sun's rays are as sure as anything that we can count on in the same way that the sun's gonna rise and its rays are gonna shine upon you that for those who fear me, those that follow me, healing there's healing that's coming. There's restoration. There's fullness. There's wholeness. And in the Old Testament, healing carried a number of connotations. I think all of which are rightly expressed or rightly understood to be expressed here. That it was deliverance from destruction. 
It was the covering of a wound. It was that trouble and disaster are removed, that there was abundant peace in the life of an individual, that there was the fullness or the realness of life, the abundance of life that Jesus talks about in John 10. And God's blessings upon the righteous, upon those who fear him, begins by him first healing the hurts, the wounds, and the deficiencies of sin in our lives. That's where he starts, is he remedies the issues of sin. Are you allowing God to heal you? Are you allowing him to do that? Notice this secondly, talks about calves uh, jumping out, if I can get my page to not turn over here. Um, talks about calves being released from the stall. He says you should go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now what he's really telling us about here is joy. Yes, there's a sense of freedom and release that are certainly a part of this, but the emphasis in that part of the text is the calves' delight and the jumping around and the joy and the satisfaction in what God has brought to him. And the righteous hope that we have is the abundant joy that's found in God. I love this definition of joy. I think this is probably the best definition that I've come across with respect to joy. Joy is the supernatural delight, right? It's, right, it's supernatural. It's from God. Supernatural delight in the person, purposes, and people of God. It's not simply that I'm happy, that I'm, um, I feel good. Uh, it's a good day. I, those aren't bad things. But joy is so much more than that. It's a deep satisfaction of the soul. It's a contentedness. It's a peace that transcends everything that's in front of us. And God's saying, those that fear my name, those that follow me, this is what's out in front of you. This is what I do for you. There's healing. There's joy. And then in verse three, I wrote this word down. There's vindication. Look what he says. You shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. I mean, that's graphic. That's pretty intense. God's saying, I'm going to vindicate my people. That's what he's telling us. I'm going to right the wrongs. I'm going to correct this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to deal with this. Because of God's activity, because of what he's going to do, a day is coming where God's people will tread down the wicked. Now hear me, hear me, hear me when I, see, when I say this. There's a day coming. There's a day that's coming where the wicked will not rule or reign. There's a day that's coming where sin will be called sin, evil will be called evil, and righteousness will be called righteousness. There's a day that's coming when the wicked will have to account for their actions. There's a day that's coming when death and deception, when hatred and harm, when malice and violence, when, when fighting and fraud of the wicked, they will stand before God and they will give an account for that. See, because all of us, all of us, all of us can look to some point in our life where we, we know that we've been wronged, we've been violated, we've been cheated, we've been defrauded. And maybe, maybe we say, like those saints who laid down their lives said in Revelation 6 when they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God's response isn't, no, I won't do that. He just says, not yet. But that day's coming. That day is coming where we're gonna be vindicated, 
or we're going to be right. See, part of why we seek for justice is because you and I are created in the image of God. And God longs for justice. God desires justice. He's put that into us. One of the things that God says repeatedly throughout the scriptures is vengeance is mine. I will repay. So I'll tell you, when we look at these verses, you see this incredible contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And there's a part of me, there's a part of me that if I'm honest, there's a sense in which I'm heartbroken that it would come to this, that God would have to respond to people in this way, that people would not respond to God's prompting and movement and grace and call and, and continued pursuit of them. And if there's a part of me where there's great relief, that God's gonna right the wrongs, that he's gonna fix this, that he's gonna deal with this, that, he, that he's not gonna let this continue in perpetuity, but that there's a point in time coming where a perfect, righteous, and just vindication will come from the one true judge. See, that's the blessing that comes for those that fear the Lord and follow him. Righteous hope, we put our hope in God's righteous work. We accept God's judgment of both the wicked and the righteous. Here's the final thing. Final thing, just briefly, look at verses four through six, two things here, that we would hear God's final word to the righteous. We would hear God's final word to the righteous. Look at what he says in verse four. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So he's telling the people, remember my word. Remember my word. Remember what I've said. Remember what I've told you. But that word remember, it means much more than simply to be reminded of something. It carries with it the connotation that we would also act upon that. It's that I hear it that I listen to it, that I'm aware of it, but then I do something about it. That I would both hear and respond. See, because it's one thing to hear the word of God. Any of us can hear the word of God, but it's an entirely different thing to actually go and do what God is calling us to do. Jesus, Jesus in John 8, as he's, well, he's pretty much rebuking the religious leaders there. And they're going back and forth, back and forth. And he says to them, he says, you hear my word, but you want to kill me. And then what I think he says next is so profound. He says, because my word has no place in you. God's word had no place in the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And I would just ask you here this morning, does God's word have its place in you? When, when God talks about remembering his word, like, oh yeah, I remember, I can quote John three sixteen. You doing anything about it? Does it move you in anything? Or is it just some little intellectual exercise and you just go back to living life the way that you were living it? See, the question is, am I willing to adjust my life to the truth of God's word? Will I adjust what's going on in my life to the truth that God's word tells me? And yet for how many of us do we want to adjust the truth of God's word to our lives? God, let me manipulate your word. Let me uh, maneuver your word. Let me uh, modify your word and that will fit me better. No, 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 it never works that way. God's saying you adjust your life to the truth of my word. Does God's word have a place in us? Remember, right, we remember his word. Finally this, look at verses five and six. He's giving us a warning He's telling us to look for the warning. Look at what he says. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
He's giving us a warning. He's telling us to look for the warning. Elijah is coming. We would understand this at the very least to be referencing John the Baptist, though there are many that believe this is not only John the Baptist, but also a reference to Jesus' second coming as well. Whether it's John the Baptist, whether it's both, whether it's just the second coming, and the motivation that we see in verse 6 is really the point in the heart of what Jesus is after. Look at what he says. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. See, what, what he's really after is about the heart change, about turning hearts. God has always been about the heart, loved ones. That's what he's always been about, is seeing hearts change, seeing hearts modified, seeing hearts repent and return to him. Before the behavior, before the mindset, before the attitude, before the words are ever going to be truly changed, it originates with our hearts. That's where it begins. And we look for his warning so that our hearts will be changed and ready. Now as we close, as we wrap up the book of Malachi, let me just have us ponder, consider, reflect on a couple of things. First of all, I want you to consider, uh, honestly, the ridiculousness of the people. I mean, they were utterly ridiculous, completely wicked, rebellious, uh, violating uh, all that God had put in front of them. And then I want us to consider God's response to that. And we've talked about God's persistent love, right? That's the sermon uh, series title, The Persistent Love of God. Just a few notes on that here as we tie off this book. First of all, that God's love for us is found first in his willingness to engage and rebuke sin. God's love for the people of, of Malachi's day in the same way that God's love for us is that he's gonna speak into our lives on issues that need to be adjusted, corrected, repented of or altered. He's not just gonna let us keep walking down this path of perpetual sin. He loves us too much to not correct us. I tell my kids all the time when I'm correcting them, I love you too much to let you keep doing this and to think that it's okay. And then we correct them. See, the most loving thing that we do is that we correct sin, not that we tolerate it. Second of all, God's persistent love is seen in giving us very tangible ways to repent, to return, and to change while God forbears with us in the process. His persistence to the people in Malachi's day, much like his persistence in our day and age, is that he calls us to continually move towards him. But in his grace, he gives us the freedom to move through the process of sanctification. Understanding that for the vast majority of us, it's not a snap your fingers and we're better. It's a process that God moves us through. And thirdly and finally, see what I love about teaching out of the Old Testament is people think that it's just, that's, oh, that's where God is like the judge and he's harsh and he's righteous. And then we get to the New Testament and that's where he's gracious. Now, God is abundantly gracious throughout all of time. God didn't like mature into graciousness. Oh, you know, I'm kind of lacking in this. Maybe in the next, uh, in, in the second volume, I'll, I'll kind of fill that part up. No, no, God has always been the fullness of graciousness. And that's seen very clearly. It's seen amply here in the book of Malachi and that it's God's grace and mercy that draws his people and ultimately changes them. As we think about persistent love, we think about God's persistent love. And then, of course, the tagline, God's pursuit of a rebellious people. God has pursued, God is pursuing, God will continue to pursue. Some of us are running from that rebellious thing as best we can. Some of you, some of you may be sitting here right now and you are fighting God on something. You are fighting him in something. 
I don't know what that thing is, but you're pushing and, and fighting back and I don't want to change and you're one of those rebellious people. Hear me when I say that God is pursuing you. His persistent love is chasing you down. God help us. God help all of us that we would move from the rebellious and that God's persistent love would push and move us to a place where God would be pursuing his righteous people. See, that's the hope. That's the hope that God would make us righteous because he is in fact righteous. Pray with me.